Welcome to episode number 34 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And this week, we welcome in another guest, semi-professional sports better, someone who I followed on Twitter for a long time. You can follow him as well, at Logan underscore Matthews 9. Logan Matthews. Good to have you on the pod, Logan. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, no problem. So we always start with a quick introduction for everyone. Um, I've known you, I guess I kind of caught wind of you through the Right Angle Sports Slack channel, I think, which you were pretty active in. Uh, and we followed each other on Twitter and kind of just followed your stuff. I, I know you're more of a laid back guy. You post like once every now and then, but you seem to be pretty passionate about things when you do. We'll get into that stuff a little bit later, but um, let's walk through your your background in, in sports betting, basically how you got started, what your story is. Yeah. So I grew up, my dad was in the military and, uh, they used to always do like pools and fantasy football. Like I was doing that stuff when I was real little. Um, and I get asked this question, you know, now that people in real life kind of know what I do, they'll be like, Oh, why'd you get started? And I always tell them when I think I was, I was either eight or nine and I won a March Madness bracket pool that I was in. I won a couple hundred bucks or something. And I bought a Nintendo 64. And I think I've just been chasing that high ever since. <laughs> um, so that that's like the the background of, of how I got into it. And I've just kind of bet my whole life. Um, uh, my job, I became an actuary, kind of learned the modeling background. Um, around this time, I started to read about guys like Matthew Benham and Tony Bloom. Um and all the things that, that they had done. And I think once I realized, I mean, I bet, and I guess I just never really knew that people did it for a job. I and mean, then you, you kind of learn that people do it and that it can be done. And so I thought I had the skills as an actuary to do it, started building models and uh, yeah, it's been going from there. So when was it that you realized that you actually had an edge? Because uh, I guess I kind of come from a similar background where I, I, I studied applied statistics in university, so have statistical background. Uh, I was modeling sports for a while, but um, I mean, for a long time I was losing. And then eventually you just kind of figure something out. For you, what was that spark point where you realized that I actually have something here, I can pursue this further? Yeah, yeah so I want to say it was a single moment. I had spent time and I built some models and I got connected i'll call it to gambling twitter but really just like the gambling space and started reading stuff and learning that side of it not just the modeling side um and then i at one point i just remember i was telling my wife i was like i'm just gonna take it really seriously i'm gonna you know deposit get a bunch get a bunch of outs um i had the idea my sort of plan was after doing all this research into gambling was i was just gonna bet soccer um the mindset behind that was soccer scaled really really well like i could start with the most obscure stuff you know, $100 max limits on third division Poland soccer. But if I was good at it, then it would scale really quickly. And I could bet, you know, things like Denmark or the second division in England and go all the way up. So that was sort of my approach. And I would say after about six months of taking it seriously, I, I, I don't want to say I knew I had an edge, but I was pretty sure I had an edge based on my return. I mean, you know, double digit ROIs on this, this really small stuff that I wasn't betting a lot on, but the returns were really good. And it wasn't uncommon to see like, like bet something minus 110 and it closed minus 300. Like the, the swings were so massive on this stuff. So w once I got into it, um, like I started hot and I, I know you guys did the the pod with AD and I know we had a kind of a similar thing, which is started really hot and kind of realized, Oh yeah, this, this can, this can work. This can happen. And in another universe, maybe I don't start so hot and I'm not doing it anymore, but because I did, I kept going. 
So when you, you know, you're, you're betting small limit soccer to start a hundred dollars, as you described it on whatever the limits were, is your, is your next step to actually scale up soccer and move on to like, like you said, the next divisions, or did you start to branch out into other sports as well? So I, I strictly stuck with soccer, um, for, for a long time and eventually, you know, as you know, what happens, like I was betting on these obscure sites, I don't call them obscure heritage, Bavada, whatever mm-hmm. you get lemonade, you can't bet anything, but a lot of them were letting me bet full limits on other stuff. So the first time I ever branched out was because I had all these accounts that I couldn't bet soccer anymore, but I could bet golf. And I always really liked golf. So I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot. And that's kind of how I started on that path. Um, but that, that was really the only time I ever deviated from the, the plan of scaling soccer. I, I'll still bet small market soccer if I have an out to do so. Uh, you know, one of my favorite things to bet is the USL championship. It's the second division of soccer in, in the States. Um, really obscure stuff has opens maybe 24 hours before kickoff. So not a lot of time for the market to mature and that kind of stuff still is my biggest edge and where I, I, I prefer to spend the most of my time. Yeah, soccer is a really interesting one. Uh, I'll let Johnny come in here in a second because I know he's got some questions as well. But uh, just really stick, quickly sticking with soccer. I think when we talk to people about soccer as a sport, everyone understands the appeal of it being able to get down potentially if you were betting EPL or any major European soccer leagues, six-figure bets rather easily at several different sports books. I think the counterpoint to that is... And why I never personally found it interesting was because then you're also competing with like the largest groups in the world, the Tony Blooms and the Star Lizard that have like 50 quants working for them, access to whatever data they want. So it, for me, it's like, um, you, you know, wh- are you, do you get to a level where you're just comfortable with what you're doing now and say, you know what, this is kind of like, I'm good with this, or is the aspiration for you? to go even further and start competing with those larger groups at scale in these major European soccer leagues. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. You basically get to the point, like you said, where, okay, I can do this level. Well, do I then challenge myself to the higher thing? And so I think I've made that step a few times and mostly out of necessity, you know, get accounts, burn through them, blocked. All right, well, I want to bet more or, you know, your bankroll grows. All right. So now, these small markets aren't going to do it for me. They're not the percentage that I want to bet. So I need to go higher. Um, and you kind of keep scaling like that, like that. I think as a mostly one man operation, my ceiling is, is sort of plateaued in there. I mean, I have betting partners that help me get down, but without spending, you know, six figures on data and hiring assistants and stuff, I think it would be really difficult to compete at a large scale. Like you said, with the Tony Blooms of the world. And I mean, the, the landscape of, of soccer betting, it, it had appeal because of its scale and you can start small and grow simultaneously at the top. It is incredibly sophisticated. You've got huge groups. I mean, you know, all euros you were tweeting about the, the limits that pinnacle was taking at kickoff. And it's like, when you, when you get to that, it's like, it, it's really tough to, to compete. I think a lot of people have that same, come up right they'll start with a really uh a, maybe a bigger sport but on the smaller stuff and find success and then ultimately hit the the problem that we all face which is i have an edge on these i want a bit more but i can't uh and then have to branch out to, to other things or find alternative ways to to bet so the question for you now logan is and we ask you most of our guests this um interesting history and come up 
And we don't want you to give away any secret sauce or anything like that. But what is, you know, what is the majority of your total betting handle now? What sports, what markets, is it through partners? Are you, you know, you know, if you can take us a little bit through your day to day now in sports betting. And like I said, again, you know, don't give out anything that you don't feel comfortable giving out. Yes, sir. So um, almost exclusively, I bet soccer and golf. Um, Golf, I tend to focus on bigger events where I can get a lot down by myself. I, I don't work with a ton of people getting down in golf. Soccer, on the other hand, I, I do have I have partners and they can help me get down, especially on small market stuff like, um, you know, I talked about the USL championship. That's something where, you know, even offshore, you might have a couple outs that have it and you can get a little bit there, but they started popping up at like DraftKings kiosk and, uh, you know, it, it once it started getting populated on bookmaker and bet online and they started posting it well then it scaled a little bit more and so having partners in, in that space was useful um in terms of my day-to-day it, it i spend it almost all it, almost anything i do is is around originating I, I don't really do any other piece um i think you know we talked about like the small scale and how or the small markets and how that might scale going up. I think some of the things that helped me early on, like when I was betting this really small market stuff, I think the two big things were um, I had edges with the data. Like I, I used to coach collegially here in the States. So I had some connections and had some uh, access to some proprietary data that was really useful in that early stage. And these small markets, it's not accessible to a lot of people. Um, and the other thing was sort of the market was, it, it, for those who don't know, soccer is similar to a lot of sports, which is price discovery, and it's largely driven by Pinnacle. However, on really small market stuff, Pinnacle won't open until like 24 hours before kickoff. But uh, if there's a game on Saturday, there's some Asian books who will open on Monday with their own stuff. And so that was sort of my my focus was, all right, who are these, what are the leagues that are opening up three days before Pinnacle even puts a line? because that's where my biggest edge is going to be. And that's where I can see these huge swings and even a not perfect model can do really well in that space. So that was sort of where I started. Obviously that doesn't scale very far, but some of those same principles that I used early on have, have definitely stuck with me. Is there any reason why you haven't branched out into other sports? Is it, you know, you, you mentioned obviously having a passion and liking golf, um, is it more of a passion thing? You you enjoy golf or so- and soccer, or you know, is it that it's not worth the squeeze for the other sports? Yeah, I think um, I'd say this coming off almost a two month sabbatical from betting, I I very easily get burnout. You know, we were talking a little bit before, like I do have a full time job that I still have, so sort of juggling it can become an issue. So if, when I get burnout, I'm, I'm really fine. Just be like, all right, I just want to take a break and not worry about it for a couple months um, or a couple weeks or whatever the case may be. So I think to go in and the sort of uh, mentally, I feel like there's a big hurdle to be like, all right, I'm going to take on college basketball. And like, I know a bunch of people that bet college basketball, they're all really sharp. They're smart. They're grinding out good edges. And I think, it would almost be like, it's, it's somewhere between an ignorant approach to the thing like, oh, I could probably do that. And even if I could do that, I don't know if I'd want to do the time commitment. Whereas I can sort of safely sit at this level, you know, going back to what Rob was saying earlier, I can safely sit at this level and grind out my, my, my edge here without any more improvement, really. I think um, per, at a personal level, I've suffered from that same burnout uh, many times in the fact, I think 
part of that is why I only focus on certain sports now, um, which is hockey and football for me specifically, because uh, I probably took on more than I could chew at one point or another in concentrating on all these different sports year round. And eventually I think it takes its toll on you. The one challenge I have um, is taking a break. And I'm interested in like when you are breaking, are you thinking about like the potential uh, like earnings that you're leaving on the table? Because this, this is something that I struggle with all the time where I'm definitely feeling burnt out, but I start to think, well, I could take a week off. I could do a vacation, but that's like, that, that could be my biggest week of the year. Like I, I start to convince myself, like, what if I take a week off and that was like the, the, the positive variance week I was going to have. And I'm curious if you ever experienced the same thing. Yeah, for sure. And I know when I first started and it became, it, you know, I'm married. And so it became like a focus of our family. Like when I have to do this, I, I have to do it. And it would always be like, my wife would always say like, well, I mean, if you just, if you miss a bet or, you know, let's, let's say you take a day off, you take a day off. And it was just your point. It's like, yeah, but I take a day off. That's all money I'm leaving on the table, whether in expected money or in, you know, in reality, um, I often will spend the time thinking about how I can do things better, how I can improve my process. And so I sort of justified it to myself, like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving money on the table, taking this time off. However, I think I can come back rejuvenated maybe with more passion or energy than I would have if I would have stuck with it. So I can make more on that side simultaneously. If I improve my process enough, you know, whether it's, all right, I'm going to focus on getting more outs or I'm going to add this piece that I think would help my model, whatever the case may be. Like, I think I can justify it in my head enough that it's sort of offsetting. That makes sense. Total sense. Um, you mentioned one of the struggles and uh, th- this comes up in the, anyone who, who bets professionally or semi-professionally or not even like some, anyone that's plus EV over the long run, uh, eventually struggles with outs and being able to get down. That's just the, the nature of things. I'm curious. I know you're not in a regulated state. I won't divulge where you're living right now or anything like that. But um, have you noticed any differences with regulation? Has it been able to help you get additional outs, maybe in the sense that there is more focus on this market from people now, more people willing to reach out to you, gambling being less taboo than before? Or are you still finding that you have the same struggles now as you might have a couple of years ago? Yeah, Actually, one thing you mentioned, I think is a really good point, And that is betting being less taboo like i feel much more comfortable talking to people about that i do that i mean i you know like most of us i think i have my buddies that know what i do and they're always like oh what are you betting on tonight blah 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 things like that but now it's more of like you can have it when you introduce yourself at a dinner party or something like it's a little more acceptable in society to do it um from a regulation standpoint it it to go back onto like what i bet a huge portion of what I bet is not US facing. And so a lot of times that carries over into a regulated market. Like if you were to go back in regulation or, you know, it being legal in the States was more popular, but let's say wherever I lived, it was legal. Or I moved to a place where it was legal five years ago when I was betting, I still want to be able to bet what I was betting. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't available. People didn't want to bet that. So to a point, it still isn't really uh, helpful to me. That said, you know, I just was sharing this on Twitter two days ago or something. DraftKings had kiosk and FanDuel had kiosk and for MLS, that was super helpful. And the ability to get down and stay off screen is great. And I, I sort of think of it as like another out, you know, it's short term, it'll be helpful. And eventually I'll probably not be allowed to bet there anymore. But while it's here, I'll, I'll milk it for what it's worth. 
yeah, solid, solid strategy. Definitely. Uh, a lot of these things like, you know, it's no surprise in the industry. We're seeing people get limited more and more often. So thinking of it as a long-term strategy is probably not the move, but exactly what you said, I think is, um, you know, flies under the radar. It's like, it's here now and there's no reason to not, you know, try to at least make as much as possible in the short term while we still have, you know, somewhat of a boom going on. And if it, if it stays, it's great. And if it goes away, then no good. Um, we also wanted to ask you about the, I mean, I wanted to ask you about the modeling specifically. So I'll touch upon golf first. So I don't really know too much about soccer, uh, to be honest on the golf stuff. Everyone knows at least a lot of people on this podcast, uh, or a lot of people who would listen to this podcast know that Rufus Peabody, who is someone we had on the podcast in the past is someone who, you know, is a very good golf originator and has been doing that for quite some time. Um, wanted to kind of ask if you are doing anything different than what he is, or if you know how you, you might be able to gain a better edge than someone like him. At the end of the day, one message we always tell the listeners is if you want to be a winning better in this space, then you don't necessarily beat the bookmakers, but the way to be the best better in the space and to scale the most is to beat the other professional betters in the space. So taking money off of a bookmaker is kind of short-sighted and they'll eventually adjust the lines. But if you can beat another big originator in the space like Rufus, now you're able to, you know, basically play off his bets and then make a ton more than just betting into a bookmaker straight. So first off, this makes sense to you guys. Uh, Rob, I know we've, we've, we've preached this in the past a little before, but if I didn't explain it correct, you want to hop in. And then Logan, if you don't mind just answering, taking a shot at that, uh, if you've got anything. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I think it's a really good point. And I feel fortunate that I have, I have a good, you know, working relationship with, with Rufus. And as much as, you know, you can be friends with someone in this space that you bet against, I would say that we are. Um, I, I would be, I think it'd be very ignorant of me to be like, oh yeah, me and Rufus, we have, we face similar struggles. I, I think that's, uh, that's not fair for me. I mean, Rufus has scaled a lot more than me. He's, you know, does a lot more than me. So, but to your point, you know, if anyone is, is familiar or isn't familiar with the golf market, there's sort of a couple things that happened throughout the week. You know, obviously the tournament runs Thursday through Sunday, typically uh, openers for the next winter will maybe pop up like Sunday night or Monday morning. Um, and that will pop up all over the place. And those are relatively low limits. Monday evening ish, you'll start to see some uh, head to heads or top 20s and stuff pop up. And basically there are two driving forces to the market. One is data golf. Um, and I don't know how familiar you guys are with, with data golf. Rufus had the data golf guys on the pod. Yep. So, so they have, I want to call it publicly available because you have to pay for it, but they do have a model available. They're very into the betting space and giving their opinion and that kind of thing. Um, so you've got people who, so, so the market opens on Monday with head to heads and I 100% believe a large amount of people will simply tail data golf and they are going to pump any book to data golf number and they're going to hit it over and over and over until data golf comes. And so that's Monday and Monday is sort of driven by data golf and Tuesday afternoon sort of driven by data golf. And then Tuesday night late bookmaker pops up. And then the same thing happens with bookmaker, which is everything moves to whatever bookmaker says, and it's, it's everywhere. So it, how I think my edge exists in golf is 
there's there's three ways to make money betting on golf. One is to hit the bad openers first. That can be very tough because of, like I said, how available data golf is. I don't really have anything bad to say about the data golf guys. Their model's not perfect, but they don't claim to be. They don't claim to be professional betters. They have a a well-structured thing, and I, I like it. I appreciate it. I subscribe. I have a membership. But that's thing one. You got to beat those people to the bad openers. Option two is you can fade data golf. And option three is you can fade bookmaker. The, the ways that that happens, uh, uh, there are many. No model's perfect. They all have their weaknesses. You find it and you exploit that. That would be my advice to someone who wanted to bet on golf. How deep into the weeds are you getting with these golf bets? So Rufus is a close friend of mine. Every now and then he's probably drunk and occasionally sends me like some sort of screenshot of the wagers he's got going over the course of the week. And it's like every bet imaginable, right? Um, top South African in the tournament, top Japanese, top player over 40. Like I'm just anything you could possibly bet on, he does, which to me would be extremely overwhelming unless you can automate that really pretty well, which I think he has. Um, but curious, are, are you strictly focused on like head to heads and outrights or are you getting into all of these other markets as well, Logan? Yeah. So one thing that I really like about golf that I think it has a different advantage to say something like soccer. I'll speak on soccer because that's the only other thing I really model out is once you model out golf, you can basically model out any, and, and you have like, all right, this is how the, the tournament's going to go. You can basically model out any possible thing. So if you know, okay, John Rahm wins this tournament 11% of the time, based on all your data, you can also model out how many times John Rahm beats Roy McIlroy, how many times he does this, how many times he does that, how many times the top, you know, Australian is Cam Smith. It, it, like it, every piece of it is just, it's either one, you can get it from your results and back mm -hmm. out of that. Or two, you just have to rerun the same simulation you've already run before with different scenarios. So I find it easy to do. However, to answer your question, I would say a vast majority of my stuff is outrights, top 20s, head-to-heads. Um, that's mostly because that's what uh, is facing me in my, in my options. Um, I, I, If I had more options to bet stuff like top South African or, or whatever, I think I, I probably would. But since I don't see as much, I don't. Um, I think the edge translates really well. So if it, like I said, if you had an edge betting head to heads, you would certainly have an edge on the top, whatever nationality market. One thing I'm very curious about, and we, we talked off air for about 10 minutes before we started this podcast and, and you golf pretty regularly yourself. Do you think that gives you an inherent advantage understanding the sport a little bit more? Because we've talked to different originators before, and there's people that are of the opinion that it's huge understanding the sport there's people of the opinion that it's a huge negative um because you think you know everything about it um you know i, I know i have a good friend of mine who pitched uh, minor league baseball and he, I mean, he knows everything about baseball for but for love of you know like he, he just can't figure out how to model it and how to successfully win at it so i'm curious being a golfer yourself do you think that gives you an advantage and on top of that um just being a fan of golf, like watching events and maybe picking up on someone might be injured. Would you be willing to overrule an output of your model um, on like this uncertainty factor? Just speak a little bit to that, Logan. Yeah. So two things come to mind in that, that sort of vein. One is if I was a better golfer, maybe I would have a better, you know, domain knowledge of, of 
of what would help or hurt. Like, I, I mean, I'm very much an average weekend golfer, so I don't want to claim to be anything else. You know, if I was, um, there's, uh, what do you, what do you shoot? I got to ask him now. What do you shoot? Uh, I, I, I consider myself, I just tell people I'm a bogey golfer. I don't really know what my okay. handicap is yep. off the top of my head. I, got I, it. At my local course, I can shoot in in the eighties pretty consistently. Um, my local course is 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 not an easy course, but I also feel like I got some home field advantage there. But um, anyway, so to to go back to it, there's a, another pod I listened to with someone who was like a semi professional golfer, or um, maybe like played in college or something. He was talking about it, and he mentioned like some specific things that he can look for and see in golfers that he thinks helps him. I don't think I have that advantage. Simultaneously, I think you bring up a good point. Like you come into it as someone experienced in the sport and you might have preconceived notions on what makes someone good or bad or good and bad in a certain situation. And those could be wrong if you're not able to back it up. Um, so I, I definitely see both sides of it. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I, I could just speak to my myself. I think part of what gives me an edge in hockey is understanding or picking up on things um, as over the course of a season, even the NFL as well, where I'm just kind of, constantly testing these hypotheses in the off season and saying this is an area to improve but i wonder if other people are just doing the exact same and if that's even giving me an edge or not so i don't know i can go i can go either way with that but your your response is interesting i was going to say i think a lot of people this is like one of the biggest downfalls they have you mentioned it off the top like someone who let's say played college basketball and then they play college basketball their whole life and they're like i know how to model the nba cuz i know all these players and i know these things or even other sports like tennis, like, oh, I was a semi-pro tennis player. I know all these guys that are playing. Like, I know who's going to beat who. And oftentimes it's like the biggest downfall because they're not actually, you know, the big, the person who loses the most money on the NFL, if we just summed every better in the world into one, the people who lose the most are the people who are the, the hardest core NFL fans. And that's because they think they know the sport. They're going to pick a side. They're going to not, you know, do things like hit the best number. The coin flipper, we know what it's going to be. You know, you're going to lose the, the, the juice. But people who are hardcore NFL fans typically lose more than the average. It's happened. Like, I mean, we see some sportsbook data and stuff like that. Like, that. that's just how it is. So, yeah, I think it's a big downfall. Um, but obviously, if you take someone who is like, like you, Logan, an actuary, you're understanding the data behind it, and then you also have experience in golf potentially, then that could be something um, that works out for you as opposed to the other way around. Yeah. And Rob, you asked a good question about like, do you see something and you mentioned like, Oh, I'll see something over the course of the hockey season that may be all from it. Um, I talked to, to Andy and drew the deep dive guys about this a little bit. And, uh, one of the big, um, factors people use in, in modeling golf is shots gained and we won't dive into, or we don't need to dive into like the deep of, whether shots gained is good or bad or it's why it's good or bad but i was i this was uh, i'll say a year and a half ago i was watching a tournament and someone hit a shot on a par three i used the same example before and it hit the top of the flagstick and dropped down if it hadn't hit the top of the flagstick it's probably 40 yards past and they're going to struggle to save to save par here and the the way that shots gained would handle that is that's up you know, a plus one and a half, you know, whatever the hole's playing, the hole's playing two and a half strokes. It's a plus one and a half shot. Whereas if he hit an inch higher and it sails over the green and now he gets a bogey, it's a, you know, minus one and a half or, or whatever. Um, so it's like, you can maybe pick up on some things that, you know, you utilize 
like I, so I know I use shots gained, so I need to be, or strokes gained, I mean, um, I, I need to be aware of, of how that's impacting things. So when I can see visualize maybe a weakness that I hadn't thought of before, that can, that can be a useful, a useful tool. Yeah. I think that there's obviously, I think there's advantages to watching sports, um, where you can pick up on these things, but it's not like a bias type of thing. Um, so, you know, stroke every metric across every sport, there's probably some sort of fundamental flaw with it in some capacity. Um, like for example, with strokes gained, you have no idea if the golfer is aiming for the center of the green or if he's aiming for the flagstick. And that would completely change your perception of that metric if you knew what the intent of each shot was. We don't know the intent. Um, so like there, there's just challenges. Um, but the reality is, and, and just to kind of bring it full circle, because Johnny brought it up in, in the first place, you don't have to have the, you know, the perfect model, right? That's not what it's about. You just have to be better than the other people you're competing against in the space. Everybody's it's efficient markets, lots of um, money that flows into these markets. If you're not better than your competitors, you're going to lose money because these are the people who are shaping the market. And that kind of, you know, is just like, it's this false perception that that gets put out there by, you know, a lot of the content people in the space and so on and so forth about, oh, you know, the, the, the books are moving this and it's like, well, they're moving it based off of money. Um, where the action is coming and or how they've profiled specific players it's not just like these random moves so um yeah i I mean we're all just trying to figure it out but there's there's no such thing as the perfect model so while we're on the topic here about a competition b golf modeling it's a good time to bring up the um we'll give a plug to uh rufus we mentioned his partner jeff they have a podcast called bet the process and uh they were hosting a few golf and other sports but mainly golf calcuttas which for those who are um, unaware what that is, I guess you can Google it, but it's basically a little a pool type thing where everyone um, you know, is able to bid on certain golfers at certain prices. It goes in an auction, and then at the end of the pool, the, there's, the prize money is the total amount bid, and there's prizes for you know who comes in first, second, third, top five, top 10, and it's obviously pre-specified. So I'm bringing this up because Logan did compete in a few of those Calcuttas, and from what I recall, I don't know the exact amounts, but um, I recall him doing quite well in those. There were some six-figure paydays, I'm pretty sure, if I, yeah. if I recall. I mean, it's public, so yeah. I guess we'll let Logan yeah. <laughs> get, uh, give it out after. But what we wanted to ask was, what was your process going into the Calcutta um, we are huge proponents of game theory and things like that on this podcast. So we'd love to know kind of like what the strategy is. And if you're planning on competing on them again and you can't give out the game theory, that's all good, but whatever you can give out and then just summarize, I guess, for the listeners, like how much did you win? What, what were the scores? Which tournaments was it? You know, we'll, we'll love to talk about this now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah. So a little backstory, I actually sent the, the, the group, um, I was like, does anyone have our, our numbers handy? Because they're going to ask it. So I do have it here. Um, it was, it honestly just sounds bad when I mention it. We did very well. We had we had an over 100% ROI on pretty high stakes. Um, so anyway, so some backstory is the, the Calcutta started. And I don't know, Rob, if you did maybe the NFL one or the college. I, I, I did, um, I believe... I'm trying to, I, I did two of them. I don't remember what, one of them was definitely an NFL one. Uh, and then maybe it was college basketball. Yeah. March Madness or something like that was the other one. Yeah. 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 I, I, I knew we were both in the, the, the chat about it. Um, so anyway, so those couple happened and I gave, and I mentioned being friendly with the river. So I kind of gave him some shit about having 
J Mac and um, Doug. What's yep. Doug's last name? Doug K. Kazir, Doug, yeah. Yeah, thank you. On it. And Jeff was like, all right, well, you're giving us shit. Next time we have one, you can be on. Um, so I was like, all right, cool. So he reaches out just before the Masters and was like, hey, we're going to do a golf one. Do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, for sure. Um, I didn't really know anything about who else was going to do it. I assumed it would be similar people, um, but I didn't really know. So once they asked me and I knew I had a spot, my first thought was, I want to at least get one other person that I work with who does numbers because for a golf better, like a, a major weekend is as good as it gets in terms of ability to get down, bet large amounts. Everyone has it. Everyone has weird props. So it's, it, it's a great time to get down. So I knew I was going to be getting a lot down on my own stuff already. So I didn't really want to just double down on that. So I said, I'd, I'd like to get someone else who's doing numbers so I can know, so I can at least have a little variation in terms of maybe what I'm sweating, what I'm, what I'm invested in. Um, and then also I was, I wanted to be somewhat cautious because I, I mean, these are pretty high stakes. I didn't, like I said, I didn't know who I was going to be competing against. So I was definitely nervous that it was just going to be, and, and in reality, in my opinion, the golf ones were, were pretty stacked in terms oh, of, yeah. of, of who was betting in them. I mean, you know, it, I know one of the things, that we talked about was like why, why do it when there's so many other sharp betters and it, it believe that I strongly considered not doing them after each one because so the masters is first to skip a little backstory the masters is first my group's pretty invested I'll say we were like fourth or fifth most invested I mean Jeff and Rufus just bought everyone for most of them <laughs> um and then the rest of us just kind of picked over the scraps and we left with, I think, like a theoretical ROI of like 15%. Like we were really happy walking away. And basically everything went well until if anyone remembers, we had Sander Shoffley. Sander Shoffley cuts the lead to one stroke on Hideki, goes to 17 and plunks it in the water. And at that point, it was, in terms of like one swing shots affecting my mood, that one is like an all timer. <laughs> because he immediately goes... Hideki's collapsing. I think he's like plus one or plus two over like the last three holes. And Xander's is just grinded back after a rough start. And so like all the momentum's with him. We're like, oh my gosh, he's going to win. He's going to win. And then he plunks it and drops. And so on the first golf Calcutta, I believe first place took 25% in terms of like, we'll, we'll talk strategy here too, but in the golf, because I think first place took 25% of the pot and second place was like 18% and third place was like 12%. So the difference in those two strokes going in the water was massive because instead of maybe winning or at least getting solo second, you end up tying for third. So we lost a little bit there, but our theoretical edge was so high that we were like, all right, well, we got to keep going back. Yep. So we did it. And then from there on, I, I can't remember the second one, we had Phil when he won. Um, so that one was obviously great. Then we had uh, Louis, mm -hmm. but Louis had great majors great every season. time, but we yep. had, um, um, Whenever he got second. When he lost to John Rom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, talk about it. It's <laughs> I feel really bad complaining about like bad beats when I just talked about our 140% ROI, but Louis tied for the lead in 17 off the tee, puts it in it puts it OB. It's like fuck, we're right back here again, man. Um, <laughs> so he did that too. And John Rom has the incredible putt on 18 to to win it and Louis gets second. And then on uh the last one we had uh we had speed who, who got second too. And, and 
Morikawa, like a notorious, terrible putter, just puts lights out. I, and I, th- I think he had like 20. I mean, it was it was the most insane thing I've ever seen from Colin Morikawa. I mean, it's looking more and more like that might be a, a thing he does regularly. But so it's simultaneously like I think we ran super hot and we also <laughs> seem to run super bad at the same time. But uh, yeah, I, th- I do feel bad complaining about it, considering how it turned out. It's funny that you mentioned the theoretical return, though, because everybody feels like they have a like a great theoretical return at the end of their because everyone's using their own numbers so you know this this was the the theme of the first two calcuttas that that i did which was nfl playoffs and yes um march madness and it was everyone after the fact like my expected roi is this and everyone's expected roi is positive so it's very difficult to gauge and i know you felt like you were getting great value out of it but there was probably people in the, that Calcutta who would have had Logan down for negative or expected ROI. I had Preston and Jeff Ma down for a horrible ROI in the NFL one. I, I thought they were like they had the worst auction. They they end up getting both Super Bowl teams, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, and like clean clean up. So uh, that that's where I find it really tricky. It's like you don't really know if you have an edge or not. You, you, you have a, f- a feeling that you do when you're done. You're like, oh, I did a really good job here or I, or I made some mistakes here and there. But it is, in a sense, a gamble, especially when you are competing against all these other sharp guys as well. Yeah, um, I, you, you do bring up good points, especially about how we think we're doing versus how others probably think we're doing. One thing I would say is I really respected the market when I went into this. So I, I, I was trying to say to myself, like, I, I don't want to get in a position where I'm taking worse odds on a golfer than I could just get if I went to bookmaker and bet on them. So whether it, the structure is obviously different, right? It's it sort of pays like a staggered top 10, basically, in terms of the payout for each golfer. But I, I, I wanted to be hesitant in that. So I, I tried to really respect the market. It, I, occasionally, there would be a golfer come up and like people would would bet on them at strange amounts and like it, it got to the point where it's like i just don't know how you could possibly come away with this number on right. this golfer yep and so you know people were take people one thing that should be obvious based on the pot size is people this group was not scared to take positions on golfers like they had a guy that they liked and they were willing to pay for it so it, it sort of worked it, it's twofold right like okay you're going up against sharp people with deep pockets who think they know what they're doing. You, you know, I speak for myself. I felt the same way. You kind of have to balance that feeling of confidence slash cautiousness uh, in terms of, of how you want to, to, to buy, to buy golfers. Independent of creating projections, um, which I think everyone has their own ways of doing it and how much, how they like, some people are going to use half market, half their own numbers, whatever to each their own. Uh, I felt that there was personally, so the first one I did was the NFL playoffs one. And what I very quickly realized is the first two or three bids of the entire auction ended up being the most valuable bids, regardless of what the teams were, because they kind of set that, that floor price essentially, and not if they could easily end up being the worst bids. If everyone collectively said, no, we're going to make the pool a little bit smaller, but you're, you're, you're gambling with all these other pro bettors essentially that are looking for a big pot. So ends up being really valuable. So that's, that was my strategy going into the second Calcutta I did, which was March madness. I don't care who the teams are at the beginning. 
I'm going to get those teams and I'm going to dictate what the pot is going to be. Turned out to be a great strategy in terms of what my expected return was. Didn't do so great on my actual return in those, but I'm wondering if there was any other strategies um, that you entered that Calcutta with in terms of like not actually coming up with projections, but potentially whether you wanted to bid up certain guys intentionally that you weren't interested in. Um, Walk us through if there was anything else. Yeah, so a a good point was each time we had the thought of, we have two separate challenges, which is we've got to project the golfers where we think they're going to finish and we have to project the pot. And the pot projection is a ongoing thing while the the draft's happening. So it's it's a little bit tougher to do in the moment, whereas your projections are your projections, your numbers are your numbers. Um, In terms of strategies going in, we would always talk about like, we have this golfer or this golfer that we like, we don't like. And obviously we, we know that sort of depending on our numbers relative to market. We talked a lot about high variance guys. Um, I, I cannot remember what tournament it was, but Matthew Wolf came back late and he was someone we talked a lot about. Like I, Matthew Wolf gets cut at this tournament 70% of the time, but there's like, three percent where he wins and that's the kind of golfer that you want in a calcutta because you know you can come up with whoever matt fitzpatrick right matt fitzpatrick never wins this major but he makes the cut a lot but that's not really that valuable to you so maybe you want to downgrade him so the the sort of type of golfer was important um the other thing was you know there were a lot of big names in there that i think played into our advantage we had an idea of who liked who before we got to the draft and we didn't really have like any insider information, but we're, we were able to utilize some things available to us to come up with ideas of what we thought other people who they liked. So we sort of knew like, all right, do we want to challenge this person on that? Do we want to stay away from them completely? Do we want to push them a little higher than maybe our fare is because we know they're going to buy them. We had those discussions too. Yeah. I, lo- I love the strategy around that. I-, I was notoriously mocked during the NFL Calcutta for wearing two sets of headphones one was I, I I don't know why I couldn't figure this out properly. I'm not like a crazy great tech guy or anything, but one was so that I can hear everyone on the Calcutta, and the other was my partner, um, who was also watching it as well. And I I, I love what you just said about like you, you basically are profiling everyone else that you're up against. So there'd be certain scenarios where my partner would be like, you know. Drew loves the Ravens. Like his he, his model loves the Ravens. We got to bid the Ravens up. Like we got to get him up on this, and and that like that became the strategy within the. It, it was just like we know certain guys are going to like certain teams, and they will pay a premium for those teams. So let's bid them up, even if we have no intent. And then you're like you're kind of sweating there because you don't want to get stuck paying what you think is way more, but you think that there's st- so it's like this balancing act. I absolutely loved them. I, I um. I was invited to the golf ones, but I turned it down because of who I knew was going to be in there. And I definitely would have been the fish in that pool. And on top of that, the the, the format of the golf one was so, let's just say there was uh, like much more top heavy than like NFL and, and March Madness where you win around and, and you get some money back. Whereas this was just like uh, potential to go like to lose a lot um, and not confident in it. But yeah, this is uh, I, I really enjoyed this discussion, Logan, because I, I had a, uh, a lot of fun doing those, but I have to ask you about Rufus and those specifically who I like to poke fun at sometimes because he, he got absolutely buried in those golf call cutters on and, his own rule set. 
uh, his own rule set, which like we were always joking about how he's creating the rules that were only going to benefit him, whatever. But you know, deep down, like I don't think he admits it, but deep down, it really bothered him. And he probably spent like a couple weeks afterwards evaluating like his entire process, digging in and thinking if there's anything wrong. But what did you think of his uh, drafts? Just random variants, unlucky? Or did you leave the draft saying like, hmm, you know, maybe Rufus, uh, maybe he's, he's not he's not the best golf originator in the market? Yeah, I mean, look, it is obviously bad variants for Rufus to drop at the percentage he dropped. Now, I, I, similar to what you were saying, I did mention this. I actually left this question for for their pod one time when they were talking about the Calcuttas. I was like, you know, in this the scale or the the spectrum of your results, where do you guys think you landed? Because the two of them were on opposite ends. Like, it, my group was super high ROI, but we were pretty low invested. Whereas Jeff was super high invested and returned really well too. So, I mean, they basically, Rufus just basically was writing checks to Jeff each golf Calcutta for huge amounts of money. Um, in terms of the strategy, what I would say, it also, I talked to Rufus a little bit about this and I'll say where, our, where we different in strategy. For, for us, we really focused on, there are certain golfers that we like, here's our fare. We want an expected positive ROA. Of course we all do on any bet we take, but we really, I, the way I approached it was we set a minimum ROI that we wanted on a golfer that cost us a lot of golfers that maybe would have made us money on a smaller spectrum. And we ended up having routinely, we were the lowest or next to lowest invested in each one, but with the nature of how it paid out, that made sense to us. I'm also not a Microsoft VP. I don't, I'm not, I don't have these deep pockets to single-handedly write these checks if, if something goes bad. Um, so that was sort of part one. The other thing that Rufus mentioned that he liked to do is he, his approach is to bid up golfers to his value or his fair number. And then as soon as anyone goes over that, they can have them. So the idea there is in his mind is all right, I'm going to make all, no one can get anyone for positive value besides me. And because they're going to bid over my fair value for this golfer, then the golfers I do get are even better value than before. In my opinion, the area where this can struggle a little bit is you are essentially taking a position on every golfer in the field. You are saying, I have the fair number on every golfer that's out there or groups of golfers, you know, get them in groups of five too. And that's a big position to take. Like you said, these are, it was not filled with a bunch of ESPN hosts throwing money away that we could take from it. It was really sharp groups. So in, in our opinion, it was better. Like we'll take positions on certain golfers and we'll set our minimum expected ROI. If that golfer fails, well, we, we were high on them. So that's fine. Whereas if you get stuck with some of these people, it will, like I said, it, 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 it's a difference of approach. He felt like he was confident enough to take he could get a fair value on everyone. We went separately. It worked out well for us this time. Will it work out for us the same next time? Who knows? The challenge with that approach too is you have to accurately project the pot over the course of time, um, which everyone struggles with in some capacity. Um, so, and, and that, that's why I think that there's such a heavy importance on being first to get guys because inevitably the pot just ends up being way bigger than everyone expects every single time. doesn't matter what Calcutta I've ever done in my lifetime. It always turns out the exact same way. Unless everyone else is smart enough to, again, say that, no, we're not going to go up to this pot. We're going to start bidding lower on other guys and leave this first guy hanging. Never happens. But 
there's that. And then I do have to, um, uh, I know we've mentioned Doug Kazarian a couple of times who we've had a guest on this podcast before. I do have to mention that he took us to the cleaners in the March Madness, uh, Calcutta, where he was invited in as a media personality. Definitely was not expected to be the guy that was going to walk away a huge winner, but he walked away a pretty big winner. I think he like, he backed a lot of Pac-12 teams that ended up making runs into the tournament. And uh, yeah, that was, I, I, I definitely, I had Doug and Jason McIntyre with by far the worst expected ROI and Doug cleaned up. But um, yeah, those are interesting. I mean, we could probably do hours on the Calcutta. I'm not sure if it's a great, <laughs> great hey, podcast. Doug's, listening, Doug's but... not as bad a better as people think. No, Doug is, Doug is um, like, Doug is sharp in the sense that like he understands how to win. Like he has enough sharp principles where he knows how how to win, understanding where where what's a bad number, so on. Like he's not the best originator on the planet, but anyways, that's my I'm I'm I'm, I'm not jumping in to defend the guy or anything like that, but I, I mean I kind of am. Um, I do want to pivot though quickly because um, you're not you are on Twitter. I think that's probably how I first found out about you, but you don't tweet a lot really. You're just kind of like in the mix every now and then, but. I did see some commentary from you this past week, um, which was centered around a <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, comment made by the CEO of DraftKings. Is it is it Jason Robbins or Robins? I never I don't really know. I'm not in tune. Okay, yeah. So um, for those that don't know, um, Jason, I'll say Robbins because I believe that's how I've heard it pronounced before. Uh, basically came out and said that DraftKings is not interested in players that bet for profit. They're a recreational book. They're there for fun. Um, But I mean, surely that's not a surprise to anyone that actually bets. But did you, I mean, you were pretty passionate about this on Twitter, on social media. Did you find it surprising that he would just come out and say that outright? So to clarify, I didn't really send the tweet i i i often think i'm funny when i send tweets but i didn't really send it to like make a point like i just i really just thought the wording of it was funny because like we don't want anyone that does this for profit well like no one bets like i'm gonna bet 100 bucks so i can donate to the sports book like no one thinks like that so everyone wants to bet for profit so that just seemed super weird to me and then like his business is just hemorrhaging money i don't it seemed like maybe he didn't understand what the word profit meant which was really the joke um i I don't have a strong opinion in terms of, oh, should every book accept sharp action? I think if I had to put a criticism of gambling Twitter out there, and this is probably a hot take, I guess, but it would be that I'm exhausted by the people who share their tickets or their, you know, they record their phone where they get limited to two and $2.50 at the these books like oh, I can't believe these people I'm going to tag circus sports so that everyone knows that I'm getting limited it's like listen man you're betting at a entertainment book I, I would assume you're picking off hundred dollar prop like you can't complain when you're picking off bad props and derivative markets and then books are stopping you like this is not the business they're in so I I, I guess this maybe seems hypocritical after I just posted mocking DK for saying this but like, I, I think it's so exhausting that people like get upset when they get limited at these places that are known places to limit people. Like, you know, this is going to happen. If you win at this book, you will be limited. Please don't act surprised when that happens. I agree with you. I, I find it nauseating as well. Um, 
Now, I have a little bit of a different background in that I consulted for offshore sports books for years. Um, now, the reality is the largest offshore sports books, I won't name them by name, but they are limiting players. They're also turning massive profits. The difference is it is that the DraftKings, I, I won't name other books as well. I don't want to bring other ones in here. Uh, but these other major sports books that are regulated are struggling massively to make a profit right now. Do you think that the limiting of players has anything to do with that? Or do you just think it's the other business expenses that are that there? I mean, obviously, there's a ton of competition in the space right now. Yeah, I had a, a pretty short discussion with the guy on Twitter who works at um, um, PointsBet. And the discussion was basically, obviously, they're burning money, but they have, from his numbers, like a 23% market share in an area where there are, like you said, a ton of competition. It's 23% is a, a huge number. They have a huge evaluation, right? It's like $14 billion or something, despite the fact that they're losing all this money. And I guess it comes down to sort of what the purpose is. If the idea was Jason Robbins, Robbins, we're going to give you a million dollars in stock mm-hmm. and get you a salary. Your job is to pump the stock as much as possible. I would say he's doing a fantastic job with that. He, it, who he accepts or doesn't accept seems irrelevant. Um, I, I don't, like I said, I don't really have a strong opinion that people should or shouldn't accept sharp, sharp action. I don't think it affects DraftKings bottom line. I shared my experience, which is with them, which is, and I took it for quite a bit. And they basically came up to my partner and were like, we know you're doing well. We're not going to stop you. But if this continues, we're going to have to take action. So at that point, we just stopped. We were like, all right, we're just going to get out of here easy, yep. take our winnings and go. It, it didn't go farther than that. I don't know what they do or don't do. Anything I know is just from social media and what people share in terms of how they're rejecting people. But I would say I, I struggled to know what taking sharp action how that would affect their bottom line if they're losing $500 million a quarter. Right. I think it's much more likely the promos and like basically cost per acquisition at this point where all these books are competing for the same players. But I'm kind of of the same mindset of you in that, I mean, at the end of the day, these sports books are businesses. They're running a business however they feel they need to run that business. And they're, in my opinion entitled to take whatever action that they want to. If they only want to take $5 bets, then fine. If they want to take, you know, six-figure bets, that's fine as well. But uh, I mean, it sucks from a consumer perspective and I get it. And that's probably why you see so much on Twitter when you are actually good at a certain craft and you struggle to get down the amount of money that you want to, but any business wants to profit like that. They're they're in it to profit. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Like I, I, I think you kind of got to put yourself on the other side of the counter sometimes and say, you know, if I was in their position, what would I be doing? And I don't know that if I was running a regulated book, I would be doing anything that's much different from what DraftKings is doing right now. And I'm curious if if you've ever thought about that and potentially if you would implement any changes versus how you're seeing these books being run in the regular regulated space right now. Yeah, I would say any opinion I had on the correct or incorrect way to run a sports book, sports book would be very arrogant because I, I don't really know. I mean, I know what I like a sports book to do yep. simultaneously. That's not necessarily the most profitable for the sports book. I think <laughs> I say, I'll say one of the best podcasts I've, I've listened to was, I don't know if you guys listened to it was when Trench, um, Matthew Trent Paul, something like that. Trench did a podcast 
where he talked about building a, a sports book. And I, I think it was a spanky tweet or something that, that kicked it off. Maybe you guys know the background a little better, but it's, it's literally the most entertaining podcast in sports gambling history. Like it's, it, I talked about this with Andy and Drew when we did theirs too. It's like, it's just him arguing with himself for like three and a half hours about the right <laughs> way to run a book. He'd be like, well, I do this. Nope. I wouldn't do that. And it, like that podcast will speak infinitely better to the correct way to run a sports book than I ever could. So I would encourage you. I don't, I think you might've deleted it, but hopefully not. So it still exists somewhere, but that would be a, a, a really good reference point in terms of like things I would change. The only thing I really find questionable that a sports book would do is if we assume there are two people, one of them is good at betting on sports. One of them is not good at betting on sports. Let's say they both deposited a million dollars and they were both betting 10,000 a pop or, you know, you can use whatever numbers, but let's suppose that they had big bankrolls. If this person bets sharp money, whether or not they run hot, they're going to be cut off. And that's fine. If a sports book wants to do that. Let's say this person is not running hot. And so they let them continue to bet $10,000. Maybe they ask if they want to bet a hundred thousand dollars because they're losing so much. Maybe this person can or cannot afford to lose ten dollars or $100,000. That would be where my issue sort of comes in. And that's the only time I really find any struggle with it is like, okay, I'm someone who I want to bet a lot of money. It is good for me, my family, that I bet a lot of money. You don't let me do it. That's okay. However, this person whose family wishes they wouldn't bet that money, you're encouraging it. You want it to come in. I know there are some different things in other places to encourage and discourage I, I don't know what the term would be, not healthy gambling. Um, and you might know a little bit more about that with your background, but th- that's the only area where I have sort of a moral issue. Yeah. I mean, the reality of the situation is all these sports books, it's no different than than walking into a standalone casino, right? There's VIP hosts and that's just the way that these businesses are run. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's predatory in a way where they are trying to extract as much money out of certain people as possible because they know that they're candidates to lose money. Um, I can speak from experience that I know of several sports books who have uh, like early VIP detection based off of what your original deposit is, what your first action is on the, on the website and a bunch of other factors, including what kind of credit card you would deposit with and things of that nature. So this kind of stuff does exist. I agree with you. I think it's predatory. I don't like it personally. Um, I, I mean, that's something that I w- wish would change in the industry. But again, if the end goal is to run a business and make as much money as possible, a lot of people aren't going to care. And that's just the reality of the situation. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Um, I'm uh, For me, uh, I might have talked about this on a previous Circles Off that we did, but I find it so fascinating that you have these massive extremes in the regulated market. So you have like the Circa's, which is catering to sharp action, taking big bets. Um, I mean, they don't have as much variety as the recreational books in terms of player props and and things of that nature, but they're willing to take a big bet. Then you have the opposite end of the spectrum, which is pretty much 90% of the sports books in the space, which are, um, if you have a pulse, you're getting limited, basically. And in the offshore world, there's like bet online, which is kind of like a hybrid. And I'm shocked that we haven't seen some sort of hybrid in the regulated space yet, where we're not going to slap you in the face with a $2.50 limit. But if you want to bet 500 bucks or a thousand bucks on a game, we'll take your action. We're going to offer a huge uh, offering of, and listen, I'm not a bet online representative or or Stan or anything like that. But I just, I just find it that so interesting that we have like these, 
these massive extremes and nothing in the middle that is servicing both types of player. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. I think to a certain extent, I've criticized Bet Online for this in the past, like because I'm limited. I think I'm at like 10% of max or whatever the, the limit is. But to a point, like, all right, at least they're still willing to take a little bit of action. It's enough to deter me from betting there. So I suppose it did its job. Right. Um, at, at a point, like, if you can't take $500 on Sunday on an NFL side, like, I, I, I just don't even know. Right. Like, ha- having that, it, it, the, the way I phrased this to someone else was like, having a sports book is, is a license to print money, having a legal sports book. I, I'm not saying you should run circa and take ten thousand dollars from from you know you and rufus and all these guys and just let them bet at will because there are risks with that too but you should let average joe bet a thousand dollars regardless like if you take a ton of liability you will have zero issue offloading that liability if you need to at a solid margin for yourself so I, i i do struggle a little bit in terms of like you said there should be a middle ground I feel like I could operate that this is another arrogant comment, but I'm going to say it anyways. I feel like I could operate a sports book where I could take a thousand dollars and just about anything. If I got to a point where my liability was too much, I could easily offload it and make good money. But the, the, again, I haven't run a sports book, so I might be missing something in terms of the issues there. Yeah. yeah I've, I've said, said this, this before. before like, like, if you, you give me anyone's, anyone's like betting history, history, just give me a month, month of betting history. history. I'll, I'll sift through that manually. I don't even, I'll obviously, if, if I was doing this, would, would build some software or whatever, but just by eye, I promise you, I will be able to identify if this person is going to win or lose long-term and just roughly how much they're going to, they're going to win or lose. Now, obviously if they're masking the action, it'll be a little bit more difficult, but I'll still figure it out. So when I'm looking at that, I'm thinking to myself, I would be able to basically just look at this person's betting history and say they are 100% going to win on X, Y, Z, and maybe it's even they're going to win on A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but they're probably not going to win on this. And if they are winning on these, then they're probably winning early in the week or you know maybe closer to the game. They're not going to win or they're not betting closer to the game. It's quite simple to basically build some sort of tracking technology that would say this person's going to beat me here, but they're not going to beat me here. I will still offer the limits here by having that just a, so much of a better customer experience that I feel like that is probably the, the single easiest thing people can do to make it, make it go better. But at the same time, like I didn't really chime in on this whole DraftKings thing. Like I, I actually respect what they said there in just saying, Hey, listen, like this is our business model. That's, it is what it is. It doesn't affect a, a high amount of people. Guys like us on this podcast are literally the only people talking about this and no one else in the world cares. Any of the investors don't care. None of the board members care. So at the end of the day, they're being open and honest about it. Respect that a whole lot more than if they said, what, what are you talking about? We don't limit players. Um, obviously, like other people have said in the past. So respect out to what they did um, and what I guess what the CEO said there. I would say moving forward, like, similar to Logan, you should be able to offer something to someone. Um, but then last thing on this that I, I always say, and anyone who's friends with me or is around me would know, like I'm a huge, 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 huge proponent. Like I love free market within business and not having a ton of intervention there. So at the end of the day, obviously there's licensing and things like that. And not anyone could just open up a book. Um, but you like, it's, competition is awesome, right? So like if, if everyone's limiting, then it opens up for another company to come in and not limit and take the business if that's really what people need. So 
competition is like the most beautiful thing in business because no matter what, something will arise and it doesn't happen overnight. Definitely doesn't happen over the course of a week or a month or whatever. But as the market matures, something will come up and we're not sure what it is right now. And like, certainly I'm not working on that as we, you know, with BetStamp, we're going a different direction, but I do think somebody will come along and build something or alter something or one of the larger companies will shift their strategy to make that sustainable. If people want to bet in that capacity and they can bet and it's profitable for the book, there's going to be a way to do it. So all in, like I would say for anyone who's worried and even bunch of tweets underneath that whole DraftKings CEO says these comments were all about like, Uh, If you're building businesses, like our our friend Porter, who we had on this podcast said, if you're building a business catered around the legal market, then like, I wonder what you're going to shift to. Cause like these guys are not going to take action. And I, I truly do believe that something will come along and definitely doesn't happen overnight, but like competition has never once failed. Like it it is what it is. You know, it happens. It's just, just straight economics. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm super interested to see that. earlier my comment about circle wasn't necessarily to bash them like i appreciate that they run the book that way i think people are self-serving in promoting them like i know a lot of of gambling twitter personalities who are sharp like to prop up circa in a way and i think it's overblown because it's self-serving like yeah spanky likes circa because they take his money and no one else does but it's not it's not like you really appreciate them you just appreciate them because they're taking your money and you think you're going to beat them like it, well, it's I'll, all I'll, the, the self-serving part of it is what frustrates me i'll give my opinion on circa rob and i talked about it earlier today and um so I'll, I'll preface it by saying i i actually respect circa a lot and i think a lot of the people behind the operation are super super sharp guys i listened to matt metcalf many times was able to meet him in person in vegas and i think he's rock solid in terms of someone who's managing a book especially ma- managing trading but and we'll try to we should try to have him on this podcast in the near future, Rob. Uh, we can we can reach out and see if he's if he's down to come on. But my opinion on Circa is like yes, they get a lot of good press within the Sharp community on gambling Twitter. But the reality is they're not actually building a brand that that the the rest of the consumers will play at. They're building a bl- a brand for only the Sharp play, the Sharp customer, and it's going to like, they should be profitable on it. And I know they're going to make money on it, but to scale that brand to beat DraftKings and FanDuel and all these other companies, they are going to need to obviously build it a lot. And I I think they probably will. And Metcalf has said they're working on, you know, adding more markets and adding more things. And they've, you know, beefed up their NFL props for this year. And they're taking a lot more on that and they're putting more out. But the reality is people want to bet on the smaller stuff for the recreational, for the recreational guys. You have to bridge away for, your product to offer the small market stuff like player props and same game parlays and whatever. And then also factor in their model of, we also want to, you know, take a lot of money and take the stuff. So when they advertise like, wow, FanDuel is only taking a thousand bucks on this game and we're taking a hundred thousand, like what the hell's going on? The reality is FanDuel is only taking a hundred, a thousand bucks for the people who they don't want to give more money to. If you got a FanDuel VIP account, you best believe that you can bet a hundred thousand on that the same way you can at Circa and probably at a less sharp number than Circa. So to advertise like the big limits and all this stuff, like I don't really know what kind of customer they're attracting there because anyone who is a sharp better and trying to bet professionally, they don't need advertising from Circa. They're going to play at every single book that will take their action. So they're a customer of Circa regardless. You don't need to take 
you know, an astronomical limit to have that player there. If you think you can beat them, then go ahead and do it. But I guess I'm ranting a lot here without like a, a super structured argument, but I don't think Circa is like the be all end all the best book on the market right now. Everything's got to be bet through Circa. So they don't offer enough for it to compete with DraftKings and FanDuel in 85% of the business. And one more thing is like I just mentioned with these VIP hosts and stuff like that, people who want to bet a lot at FanDuel and are sharp can't. But the majority of people can actually bet a lot at FanDuel. Like you can refer to Trader and if you got a super square account that's five grand, 10 grand in the red and you're trying to bet 10, 20, 30 grand on something, like they are going to take that bet. So the, the, the problem of people not being able to bet as much as they want is not really a big issue. It's the problem of people who are sharp and are winning can't bet as much as they want not the other way around. So that's kind of my rant on Circa. We should have Metcalf on. I, I'll, I'll reach out to him this week and hopefully we can get like a nice debate on what they're trying to do with this space. Again, didn't I'm not saying anything negative here. I just, I don't think it's as great in terms of the limits as people think, but all in like they are a few moves away from being the best book in the market. It's also very difficult to beat a sharp sports book. Uh, regardless, like we, we had Michael Craig on, um, couple months ago. Right. And I, he kind of told a story. I think that is very like hits home with me, so to speak. But I think the first step for any better, who's not, let's say you're not betting at like a hundred thousand a game or whatever. And we preach this with bet stamp. Like I, I actually live and breathe this, but it's getting the best number available to you. Plain and simple. Like that's the, the first step of any process for me is how can I get the best number on a game? And eventually you're going to bet it at the sports book that's giving you the best number. Michael Craig had a really funny story where he's talking about like doing his accounting on Mondays and the pinnacle limit, the, the pinnacle account balance never goes up. The rest of the sports book account balances go up, but pinnacle is the only book that he ever has to keep redepositing at because they're a very sharp sports book and they have a lot of sharp players betting there where they like, if you're getting the best line available, the best line available to you is at pinnacle it's probably a good chance you're on the wrong side of the game. That's not to say you shouldn't bet it, but I mean, and that's the case with Circa as well in a lot of cases. If they're offering you the best line in market, there's someone of influence that really likes the other side and someone that they know is a proven long-term winner. So that's something to keep in mind as well. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I just like another argument for line shopping, I would say in general. But um, Logan, before we get into our final question here, we did a, uh, a mailbag episode or a Q&A uh, a couple weeks back, and there was a couple questions that you had specifically asked to Circles Off Twitter account, which we didn't touch on, which I think are interesting um, related to BetSamp. I, I wanted to just discuss them in an open forum a little bit more. We didn't really choose to avoid them. We were probably going to get to them in an, an upcoming episode, but because you're here now. Um, so just here, here's the first of the questions that you sent in. And do you believe that advertising for pick sellers is a net positive for stopping people from buying minus EV picks, negative EV picks? And I think that's a really interesting question because I've been a pick seller myself in the past. And the answer is no, I don't think that it's a net positive for stopping people from buying picks. I think that behavior is going to happen no matter what. I think I can tell certain people till I'm blue in the face how it's going to hurt their bottom line if they buy picks, how they they shouldn't buy picks.
But the reality is it's very likely that person is going to do it anyways. I think that's just like a behavior that is going to continue, especially going to continue in this market. I think what we're trying to do is create a tool so that people do not get scammed when buying picks and at least can do their due diligence on the pick buyer and say, this is a legitimate record. It's not just propped up by one pick that was a thousand units or, or maybe it is, but now I can identify that it is propped up by one pick. That's a thousand units. So it's always, this one's a really tricky one um, because there's people that are on, it's, it's another issue that I think where people are on like polar opposite sides here of whether they agree or disagree with pick buying for us, it's all, it's all about the consumer making an informed decision. And I'm curious if you find that to be, and you can be completely upfront with me. I don't care. Like if you buy that as an argument, or if you still think that that's BS. So I'll, I'll preface it by saying I'm not a yes, all touts guy. That's going to cost me points in the Seville community, I suppose, but that's, that that's true. Like I, I, I know the, the Raz guys and I have respect for, for Ed and like what they've done. So I don't think like it's a hard and fast rule. Like you sell picks, you're worthless or there's no way this pick has any value. However, to the, the point of the question, which I think you, you made a fair thing, which is like, it, is it going to help people from not buying EV picks? It, probably not. Like a pre, there are people who want to do it and they're going to continue to do it. I guess I, <sighs> It's hard because maybe you guys look at yourselves as like advertisers to it. It, it, And I'll say this as someone who's used that stamp, not a ton. Like I used to follow people on there. I know recently you guys got soccer in there. So it's, it's not, it's never been very front facing to me. Right. So that's, that's soccer and golf were the two sports that we were missing for a long time. Yes. So I get it. (laughs) Um, So I, I think maybe the thing would be like, do we feel like, and I'm speaking for you guys, do we feel like we are advertising for people who, two different kinds of people. One, are we advertising for people who are going to, I don't want to say scam because I don't necessarily think most pick sellers think they're scamming. I think they think they're providing value, but they're not. Right. So are we advertising for those people? And on the other side of it, we have people who, want to buy picks and we can identify them however we want. You can say they're just people who want to buy picks. You can call them degenerates who are looking for something to gamble on. Do you feel like you are advertising and encouraging what those people want, which we can agree or disagree that those are negatives. And if you don't think you're advertising for them, maybe what do you feel like, do you feel like the platform helps both sides of that? We have to give some incentive for the pick seller to join for one. So that there is some advertisement of picks in, in the marketplace on Betstamp. Um, and, and I'm just being like, I'll be brutally honest here as I always am. And I hope that people will always consider Betstamp to be like a very transparent brand as well. Cause that's what we're going for. Bringing in touts is an acquisition tactic for us because if we get a tout onto our platform, they now bring along their subscribers with them. So we go from getting, instead of getting one user to potentially getting 20, 40, 50. But there is an ulterior motive for us as well in that we want to be like the source of the truth in the tout industry. And we would like to grow it to the point where if you are not advertising 
or posting your plays or selling on Betstamp, then you're a fraud. And that's what we want to build that community. Can I say that we will get there? It's going to be difficult because we see this all the time. We, we literally reach out to touts where they respond to us and they, they tell us they do not win and they don't want to be tracked. Like that happens. We, we reach out to people who are definitely not long-term winners, but they want to come onto Betstamp because they think that they are and they want to legitimize themselves and it'll never happen. The, the one thing I will say is I review the Betstamp pick sales every single day. And what we were going for was having people make informed decisions. I will say that I'm fairly confident right now that at least 95% of the pick sales are plus from plus EV cappers. I, I truly, I like guys that I'll look at their profile and I'll say, this guy's selling picks, but he's a long-term winner. And for someone to buy their picks, they're not getting scammed. Now, either for the 5% that are buying losing players' plays, at least they're doing it on their own accord and being able to access all the information necessary to make that sale. But on our end, it would be unfair to bring the pick sellers over and, you know, just hide them all on the site. Like everyone has to have equal opportunity in some capacity. I don't know if you want to add to that, Johnny. Yeah. I was just going to say, Logan, the main thing I guess that Rob's missing is that we, we wanted to make it so that we don't tell you who to buy picks from. So our platform is not like some other competitors in a sense where we're like, oh yeah, here's the five bets, best bets for this, or here's the top thing to bet here. Like we want it to be a spot where you can come if you just want picks, but you're still going to have to do a little bit of work and sift through and say, okay, I would like to buy picks from here. I'd like to follow picks from here. I'd like to do this. We as a platform obviously have like an, a little algorithm that shifts around the featured pages and, and who gets featured and stuff like that. But there's no bias towards anybody on the site, either negative or positive. It's meant so that anyone, like I told you about if I was running a sports book, what I'd be able to do is look at someone's betting history for the last 30 days and tell you if they're a winner, winning or losing better. And now I can do that same thing on Betstamp. Theoretically, if somebody posts all of their picks to Betstamp for 30 days, I can now look through there and say, okay, they bet it at this bet. They bet at this book. Oh, this one was just them steam chasing NBA. And maybe that's not the best thing to follow. Or this one was posted against these three soft books. Um, and then you'll find someone who's posting only against Penny or Chris or Circa and then saying, okay, this person's only posting against the sharp books. This is the time that they're posting at. They're not steam chasing. They're not hitting anything stale. They claim to be originating in this market and, or this person's hitting MLB overnight bets and they're only posting against pinnacle price and they're achieving this closing line value in the morning. Like being able to just go through and look at that and look at someone's betting history is where the value is. Whether you want to buy the picks or not is obviously someone else's prerogative, but we give the, we give you the chance that 100% of the time, you're able to look into that transparent history and you can have faith as a person who's just a, a buyer that the info on there is legit, hasn't been tampered with. We don't edit picks. People can't edit picks on themselves. It's never going to affect your verified record. We don't give preference to someone who emails in and, and pays. Like no one, no one pays us to be featured on the page. It's all done. We don't take a commission on pick sales. There's no bias that could possibly come in here where obviously we want people to be using the app. But if someone buys pick seller A versus B versus C or doesn't buy picks at all, it doesn't matter to us. We're not making any money off that. So we've stayed, you know, 100% impartial. That's 
I guess the biggest argument against something like you would ask, but other than that, I think Rob, Rob nailed it in the sense that, um, you know, people are going to do that anyways. And we're not necessarily claiming that by using BetStamp to buy picks, you're going to make a shit ton of money. I would personally claim that by using BetStamp to odds compare, you're going to make a shit ton of money. But other than that, you know, we're, we're not, the messaging is not centered around there. So I don't know. What do you think, Logan? Let's, uh, it's probably a good chance for a debate if you have anything to add. But let me lead by saying this was not my attempt at like a Seth Burn hit piece of like when he went and attacked uh, Jeff and Rufus. Rob and Johnny put it on the the notes like they wanted to discuss it. Um, but I, I I think what you're saying is fair. Like I I I, I appreciate the idea of like pixeling is going to happen. We are going to make it as transparent as possible for people when they do it. I don't, like I said, I don't have like some moral bias or moral thing against buying picks. Let me throw out a scenario to you. Tell me if it's plausible. Tell me if you think it's fair for each party. Let's say I created a bot that, and this is somewhat sophisticated, but for the sake of argument, let's say I created a bot that pinged off your guys' page. Anytime there was a number that was off market of, book A, book B, whatever I want it to be, yep. bookmaker pinnacle. I put that in as a play for my, for my subscribers or I'm building an account that you guys might want. Well, you obviously know better than me how it affects the end result. But let's say I play that. Anytime that happens, I play it. I would assume it would not be, it would be possible to be faster to that because I know like personally I can do it to actually bet it manually and click through all the screens and that. So I feel like I probably do it on the app. If that is possible, like you said, you know, some people are just steam chasing. Yep. I, I think steam chasing's a valuable tool and I think it's worthwhile for the steam chaser. I don't know that it's worthwhile to the person buying picks. If that person then makes a pick package on, on top of that, sort of the second scenario would be there was this account and I don't know if it's still on Twitter or not, but it existed for a while and it was, it's somebody who is connected to groups and they have accounts that they've given and to shit background to listeners, obviously you guys know this, but people will partner with syndicates and give them their accounts and then syndicates will bend into it. So this person clearly has syndicate accounts and they monitor the accounts as to what plays they're getting to sweat or whatever. And then they were tweeting out plays that they would see and then, and, and then would be useful later. So we, we can scale this in, in however way you want. You But I just don't want to talk about these two separate people. Steam Chaser, Taylor, however you want to define this person who's not originating. Do you think it's fair that both can profit off their respective things? Do you think there's any issue with either to utilize your source or your service as a way to make money? So I'll start with the Steam Chaser thing. We get this a lot. So someone will say like, oh, this user... Um, just posted that he bet the Raptors plus six at BetMGM and Pinnacle and Chris and rest of Marcus plus four. And I'm like, and I respond saying, buddy, check MGM, check it right now, go to the site. And sure enough, bet plus six, it's, it's hanging there. Go ahead and take it. So in what, what we are trying to do is mimic real life as fast as possible. You know, listen, sometimes we have downtime on feeds. It's just like, 
Like if, if anyone ever has used Dawn Best, you'll know how much downtime there is. We're significantly better than that. And yeah, sometimes there's going to be downtime on a feed where a line's reversed or swapped and someone hits that and we'll message them and say, listen, this play has been unverified because you hit basically the other side and the lines were flipped and you got a plus 700 that should have been a minus 1100. So that is going to happen. And obviously that's unacceptable. But in a sense where someone just picking off a stale line at a bet MGM or another book, like that exists in real life. We have to be able to mimic real life. I can't say, oh, that pick's not verified because Penny and Chris were at this number or because your PPH was at this number. Like it doesn't matter that if that line exists and they could have beat in real life, technically, as soon as they track that notification goes out to a subscriber. And if they track it at a line that's available in real time, the subscriber should in theory be able to get that price as well. Now, whether repeatedly hitting those prices at max bets is going to get you limited at those books is a different discussion, obviously, but it's there. So we have to verify it and we have to just allow that to be a thing. And to be honest, I would encourage people to do that because it just shows that they can win if they have access to those accounts and the subscribers who are getting those plays are also going to win long term if they're able to capitalize on that in real time. So I will say first, I will say just to interject the, the subscriber too now has access to all that information, right? If I'm going through someone's play history and I see that they're posting at a dozen different sports books and essentially doing exactly what you described, Logan, now I can say, this is not someone I want to buy from. Like I can just do this myself. Now th- this brings in like another level of, okay, is the consumer capable of identifying that? Probably not all the time. So that's fair. And we can build educational pieces around that, which we actually are doing right now. But to, to Johnny's point, like that can happen in real life. Um, now, we'll, we'll, let, let's touch on the bot one as well, because I have some thoughts, but Johnny, I'll, I'll let you jump So the, the second one you were mentioning was just like if someone had access to syndicate accounts and then they were going to play those in there and give subscribers an edge. My answer to that would be, one, like, is there an ethics issue to somebody basically taking that information and then selling it elsewhere? Probably. But that issue is basically an ethics issue that they would have to deal with. And I'm sure if people betting into those syndicate accounts knew of that and it was ruining the market, they'd cut that person off or find a way um, to go an alternate route. So all in, um, again, and I maybe and maybe this is a little a bad one as well, but like, no, there's absolutely no problem with that for me because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you get the information. I'll back it up and just touch on what we touched on at the beginning is like Betstamp as a platform for selling picks and for information is just meant to be as accurate a representation of your real life record as you can. So if you can bet those and those lines exist and you're betting them at a time when those exist, then there's zero, there's nothing that I can say as like a founder of the company or anything to tell you, oh, that's not allowed. You shouldn't be able to sell that info. Like if it's providing value, like all we care about is that it's placed at an accurate line and that it's timestamped and it will be verified if it's at an accurate line and it's timestamped as any time before the game. So like pretty much if we're one thing we are working on in terms of like making better is like limit verifications and obviously we launched the new bets, uh, bet link feature where with this feature, it's going to actually pull in wagers that were at people specific accounts. And it'll be like the ultimate form of verification where we know that that person actually bet it and for what amount or whatever. So that obviously is coming down the road and we're working on other things in regards to limits and how not to be able to circumvent limits and things like that on the app and, you know, place a bunch of bets for a hundred and one for a thousand. We have some workarounds right now that we advertise as to how 
to you know sift out people from doing this. But as far as we're concerned, as long as that line exists, and as long as that line exists at a specific time that's prior to the game, that's going to be verified. It's going to then be up to the better to factor in if they want to actually tail it or if they can get down on that or if they can make money doing so. So we have, you know, the line existed. Here's what time it was bet at. And you can never delete that once it's locked in, just as how you can never delete a bet once it's placed to at the sports book. You know, you can't, we can't allow people to delete it 10 minutes later. Once it's placed, it's placed. Edit it for your own personal tracking at any time or delete, wipe it from your personal record. But in terms of your actual bet stamped record, that's public facing. It'll never change. So I'll say... I, I, I totally think what you guys are saying is fair. And, and I, I think you guys have what I'll say our best interest in mind for the two scenarios we looked at. One, the, the person who's copying syndicated plays, I personally struggle with those. Like this Twitter account I'm referencing, I was seeing my own stuff come through there. It's, it's tough because, I mean, you guys are, you guys either know this personally or know people who deal with it. Like, Leakage is part of being an originator at a large scale, and you're going to have those issues. I would certainly have an issue if someone was taking my stuff and then reselling it. But that's me. When we talk about like, oh, DraftKings, they're worried about, we're talking about 10% of people, blah, blah, blah. That is an even smaller percentage of people, right? Like the amount of people that are really going to be affected by this are so tiny. And so I may be speaking out of a scenario that doesn't really exist for anyone else. So that's part one. For the person, we'll just call them the person steam chasing on the account. Yeah. I think we've seen over time that, Oh, ARB betting bots and things like that do cannot work on a large scale for a long period of time. So maybe, maybe I'm the idiot here for not subscribing to this person who's creating this bot and picking a ping me the, the stale lines. And I, I'll, you know, I'll, tip them 10 bucks and I'll make all kinds of money and then it'll stop and then I'll stop paying them. So maybe the issue's on me, but I, 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 it's just like anytime one of these things pops up, like you see someone pop up on game link tour, like, Oh, we're creating a bot that will send you our blinds out there. And it's like, dude, this is not going to work. You can't build this at scale. And obviously that's not the purpose of bet stamp, but I, th- I feel like people will probably utilize bet stamp in that way. Yeah, I, listen. I think your your concerns are valid, like, and they're they're real life scenarios. The the only other thing I'll say is like, this is not a cop out in any way. But Bent Stamp, like, we're growing as a product, right? Our team is growing. We're putting more money into development. That's what's happening. We, me and Johnny are we we bet every single day. Uh, Johnny's partner Julian, who we've had on before, bets. Like, we are we identify this stuff in real time. Like we see when there's people that are steam chasing, taking advantage of bad lines. We know that there's probably a problem with our feed, but we have like internal processes in place to ensure that they can't get away with that going forwards. Now, once we start to grow at a larger scale, it's got to be more automated than me and Johnny checking every day. And we're working on that kind of stuff as well. But there are some, we just want to like, the whole goal is that if it can be bet and someone is able to get that down, and verify it, then that we're, we're comfortable with that record because it's, it's legitimate. Like they, they could actually bet that. Now at the limits that some people are betting, maybe not. We have some ideas on how we can work around that as well because obviously there'll be people that lock in a $50,000 wager at William Hill, right? And we know that, I mean, it's possible. It's very, but probably not type of thing. 
So we have these edge cases, which we're working through, but the reality is that we, we just like, if, if we can verify that that line existed at that time where it was placed, regardless of what, whether it was steam chased or was someone else's information that was accessed or whatever, that's the goal of the platform. Those people. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I, th- I think at least there's the, the, the platform that people have to pass to at least get to that point. Right. Like, it, you know, Zilbert out there posting the Cardinals <laughs> under last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was. And it's like, Oh, I bet it. Uh, yeah. I don't know what you want from me. I bet it yesterday. And that's when I set the article in. like, at least there's that level of you know, like you have to at least hit this, like you said. So I, I do appreciate that at least that exists. We're going to have to cut that out now because um, Matt has fi- he will, might file legal action uh, against us as he's threatened to do so in the past whenever his name has come up on this podcast. So apologies, apologies, Matt. We don't we don't want the lawyers coming after us here. The only thing better than that was I. It was a couple weeks ago. I, I can't remember, I can't remember who the, the the guest was, or maybe it was the mailbag episode. When you were talking about the guy who sells picks, who was like, "You gotta stop because you're gonna reverse engineer my stuff." I was I was on a run listening to that, and I just like I literally stopped running. I was like, "That can't be possible." He didn't really say that, did he? Well, he didn't say that. A representative from his team said that. Um, but yes, that was the a real conversation I had. I said, "Like, listen, I know that this is probably not the reason, but if this is the reason you're giving me fine, like." I'm I'm not here to cause a huge stir. At the end of the day, I would like to get, like I said, to get the platform to a point where Warren Sharp is just posting on our locking in his picks and selling from our platform. And if he's not, then people realize that hmm, maybe there's something up here. So that's kind of the end goal. Yeah. And to Rob's point earlier, we are like, we're reviewing these, these things like on a weekly basis as well. So when people say like, we people have been able to game the system on Betstamp in the past, and we've then just gone ahead and fixed that and and made a workaround for it. So it's kind of like, you know, someone will someone will say, ah, oh, like this guy on Betstamp's been able to do this, and he's like doing this. I'm like, okay, great. Let me look at it. What's he doing? Sounds good. Thanks. All right, send a note over. Development teams building a quick fix to that, or Rob and I build a quick fix to that, and it's done. Right and now, it's that thing is solved, and then. The next problem comes in another month. Oh, someone game the system because they were able to do this. Great, let's solve it. So as we also have this problem, uh, as we also have this, sorry, this product get bigger and bigger and as time, more people get a chance to use it and try to game the system, we will eventually just iron out all of the kinks. And yes, it's a constant battle, but you know, it, it's quite easy to come up with these fixes. Like we mentioned limits right now. I'll just give you guys a quick overview. Like some people are locking in very small plays and then, hoping like, you know, setting a base unit of $10. And then if they're going down 10 units and they'll start betting a hundred dollars. And then yes, it's also possible that they could be doing this. And the Martingale system works if you have unlimited money and enough places to bet unlimited money. But the reality is like, it's probably not happening. So we're working on ways to fix it. We've, we've added in basically little triggers for people to say like, listen, this is this guy's average bet size, but his maximum bet size 5,000. Here's this bet this is the way this happened. It's probably not someone who's reputable. We've reached out to a bunch of people doing this and are now working on a a, a finite way to eliminate that completely. So things like this in the industry, um, Betstamp, I told Rufus this as well when he mentioned to me, like, he's like, oh, well, you could technically do this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, you can. We're going to fix all those. And also it still solves 99% of the the problems of, you know, a simple deleted tweet on a 0 and 5 day 
and an omittance from a record down the road is comp- infinitely more harm than anything you could possibly do on BetSamp with gaming the system in any capacity. And like we said, it's all getting fixed or has been fixed in the past. Yeah, I think I, I, I think uh, it, I, one of the things you mentioned really like triggered something. I'm like, I think what my real point of asking those questions initially was, which is we've seen with people who sell picks the shortcomings of that system. And so we know what exists in whatever fashion it is. We know that that is that that happens. And if you place the fact on the, or, or it, not even just necessarily, necessarily a pixel or someone who advertises themselves as a winning better, right? We've talked about some people who say they're winning better on Twitter, but we know they probably aren't based on how they talk. Now, if I don't have to actually really place a bet, like you said, you may be betting limits that don't really exist. So once you get to that point, like I can, I can show you my bet or I can put it in the system, but it doesn't actually have to be a real bet. Like the way to game the system seems possible, but I, I think you guys have mentioned a lot of the the structures in place to to stop that. Yeah, I mean, let, let's, let, there's a there's there's a lot of I, I wouldn't even necessarily call what that an edge case because it's actually not an edge edge case. It, it could legitimately happen where someone is not betting and they just are using the app to track their plays, which is fine. And then maybe they get on a hot run and they want to sell those plays. I mean, I'd say it's probably an extreme exception, but the reality is, like we, like Johnny said, like we, we are we have a bet link live and up now. Now that doesn't handle offshore sports books, so it is what it is. But for most of the regulated sports books, you pull the bets directly into your account. We're going to have some sort of indicator that it's actually linked as that was a real wager that was placed. Now the consumer knows that whoever they're buying picks from actually bet that game as well on top of recommending it or just lo- tracking it on BetStamp. So further improvements are being made. Um, I, I mean, at the end of the day, that this will not satisfy everybody. There's fundamental disagreements on whether pick sales should happen or shouldn't. There's people that lie on the opposite ends of the spectrum. There are people that are in between that are indifferent. I was one of those people that was in between that was indifferent. I think pick sales done the right way is perfectly fine. Uh, I would, I'm not going to mention names, but like uh, I'm mentioning name, but like, you know, we're trying to eliminate the Vegas Daves of the world, right? Which are just preying on people and um, that that's got to go from the industry. So it's not that I'm passionate about pick selling. I'm more passionate about getting rid of the the negative pick sellers, if that makes sense. But uh, appreciate the you taking the time to have like a um, a debate back and forth, or at least share your thoughts openly. And um, like we obviously respect you, or we wouldn't have you on this podcast in general. So everything's appreciated. And that question was definitely not viewed as a negative shot in the first place. So just just to clear the air there. But appreciate the discussion. I'm sure we could talk about more more about this in the future. Uh, and it will go on forever. And I'm sure we'll get some comments about this. But um, we will close it up here, Logan. Wait, should we ask the Billy Dollar flip? Because you are an actuary. I, I'd oh, yeah, to get the- that's true. I'm sure you, so you've heard it before. Everyone who's listened before, billion dollar flip, not going to ask it again. Logan, give your answer. What, what amount of money are you taking? I, th- I I think it's probably pretty low, but I actually thought the discussion you guys had with Plus EV was, was pretty spot on. Like, all right, what's my life changing money? Let's say it's a hundred million dollars. Well, yeah, I'm going to take 99 million. Well, yeah, I'm going to take 98 million. So I, I, <laughs> I, I think everything you said was good and I don't want to just repeat those points. I don't, I, I don't even know it's it goes all the way down right like I, maybe i'm taking 10 million i i don't really know how far it would go but i think uh i think all the points presented there were were accurate so give us a range so you're in the camp that you're probably taking in the 
tens of millions versus higher than that, or maybe even lower, you're saying? It, my, my first thought to the answer was 100 million. I mean, it, really, my first thought is the, uh, to the answer was I'm going to sell the action to someone. <laughs> like uh, I'll sell plus 110 aside and just take my little bit of profit in the middle and let the flip come where it may. But um, yeah, I, 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 I would love to say, oh, it's 100 million because that was the first time that popped in my head. But is there a scenario where someone offers me $99 million and I say, no, I, I can't imagine it. But luckily, <laughs> it's a theoretical I don't have to really weigh on. All right. Well, hopefully it becomes a real if I ever if I ever get rich enough, like in stupid money, then I'm going to offer it around to some people we had on this podcast. I, I will, we'll do it for real. Uh, OK, so the closing question we've asked all the guests, um, all the guests is if you had to go back five years in time, talk to the previous version of yourself. What is uh, one piece of advice that you would give to uh, Logan from five years ago? Yeah. So I, I, I really thought the best answer that I heard on this was, I, I can't remember his first name. He goes by MLB case psychic. And it was yeah, Porter. basically like, Porter, Porter, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, and he was like, bet full Kelly or bet more aggressively. I think that's the right answer. I mean, sitting here now, I, that's what I want to tell myself. I want to tell myself to to buy a punk. I want to tell myself to invest more in crypto, but that's all survivorship bias, right? Like that's all right. feeding into that. Like, because I'm on the other side, I know what it looks like. I want to give myself the tools to, to, to make more money. For, it, taking that out of it, taking something I can tell myself that, that wouldn't make me more money. I would probably just tell myself to like, go for it. At five years ago, I was betting more, I don't want to say casually, but not as seriously. And I had those thoughts. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably fall in this mindset where they're like, oh, maybe I can do it. Maybe I can't. Like, you, you really just have to go for it. Like, you can't half-ass it and think, oh, I'll just half-ass it for a few years. And eventually, my bankroll will be half a million dollars. Like, it doesn't really work that way. Like, you, you either commit yourself to it or you don't. So I would say something I would tell five years ago, me or someone who wants to make money in this space, I would definitely tell them just commit yourself to it. I think that's good advice. Yeah. I mean, listen, like, like you said, anyone can go back and say, yeah, I tell myself to buy Bitcoin. That's like the most common answer that we get. But I think what you're talking about is like more constructive and like, you know, you don't have the, yeah, yeah we want advice. The answer shouldn't yeah. be all uh, like, Here's the lottery numbers. Yeah, I'd, I'd buy yeah. Tesla and Apple and whatever. Like, yeah, obviously you would. Everyone would at this point, right? Like, it's a, so that's a good piece of advice. Uh, appreciate the time, Logan. Uh, for anyone that wants to follow Logan on Twitter at Logan underscore Matthews nine. This has been episode thirty four of the Circles Off podcast. Please rate and review five stars, and we'll catch everyone next week.